Heavenly Father, bless our new home and watch over us as we become a part of this community. We thank thee for this food. Bless it to the nourishment of our bodies. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, 25 years now, at least according to this recording. And you can find all of my written work at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcasts that I do. A little bit more recent movies than this one, but not by a lot. Films of the 1990s, with some look at newer movies that are inspired by films of the 80s and 90s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. And you can find the link to that podcast at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of this. I think it's going to be a four-part look at the Amityville films of the 1980s. Well, the first film was from 1979, but this sequel, or prequel, I guess, definitely came out in the 1980s. It's called Amityville 2, The Possession. Amityville 2 is an R-rated film. It does have gore, strong violence, disturbing images, sexuality, brief nudity, a drug reference, and language. The runtime is an hour and 40 minutes. The cast includes Jack Magner, Burt Young, Ritanya Alda, James Olsen, Diane Franklin, Erica Katz, Brent Katz, Moses Gunn, and Leonardo Cimino. The director is Damiano Damiani, and the screenplay credited to Tommy Lee Wallace. If you listen to the previous episode that covered 1979's The Amityville Horror, you're going to know some of the background to how Amityville 2 got made. It's a bit more convoluted, so hopefully you'll be able to keep it straight. There are at least several different attempts to make a follow-up, and I'll get into at least the development of those and why this particular version made it all the way to the finish line. Now, we go back to 1979-ish. The Lutz family, they had already sold their story to author Jay Anson of their account about purchasing a home in Amityville, Long Island. They left after 28 days because they claimed there were demonic things going on there. They neglected during that deal with Anson to secure ancillary rights that covered TV and film adaptations of the book that would come out based on their account. Anson did have those rights. He sold them to his friends at his company, Professional Films, who then sold it to CBS for a made-for-TV movie, and then CBS turned around and sold it to American International Pictures for a feature film shortly before the company AIP would merge with Filmways Incorporated. The Lutzes did, however, retain rights to anything that would happen to them after they left their Amityville home. Their agent immediately began shopping around their new stories of continued paranormal experiences beyond the Amityville home to various publishers. Meanwhile, Hans Holzer, he was one of the parapsychologists who investigated the Lutz home during the controversy. He was busy writing up what turns out to be several Amityville-related books. The first of these efforts, called Murder in Amityville, that was published in 1979, and that specifically covered the events surrounding Ronald Butch DeFeo, who killed his parents and four siblings in the Amityville home prior to the Lutzes back in 1974. Holzer researched the history of the home 
And also the land that it resided on, the parcel. He also interviewed Butch DeFeo in prison, and he obtained the court transcripts of his trial. DeFeo's defense claim was that he committed the murders while he was possessed by some demonic spirit within the house that was speaking to him. In late 1979, AIP, the company that made the first Amityville Horror, they scooped up the TV and film rights to Holzer's novel for a six-figure sum. Because the events of Holzer's novel were a matter of public record, and it was set prior to the Amityville Horror, AIP felt that they could proceed with a cinematic follow-up without needing permission from the Lutzes. Now, around this time, there was another film that was being made by Dino De Laurentiis. It was unrelated to the Amityville Horror. It was a fictional horror movie script idea that he came across that he happened to love by a fellow Italian named Dardano Sacchetti, and that was called Lo Orco. Dino flew Sacchetti to his London office to work on this script in English as The Ogre with a British novelist named Colin Wilson. Wilson would write Space Vampires, which would be the basis for Life Force, the Toby Hooper film from the mid-1980s. Now, Dino attached a director that he had under an expiring contract, Damiano Damiani. He wanted Damiani to work on The Ogre. Sacchetti, he had worked with Damiani before. They did a, a never-produced adaptation of this Richard Condon novel called Mile High. And he respected Damiani, but he did feel obliged to inform Dino that Damiani was probably the wrong choice. Damiani preferred to do serious, intellectual films, not really fantasy and horror. Dino, though, said you know Damiani could direct this film. It was Sacchetti's job to make sure that Damiani directed the story the way that it's written. Now, meanwhile, the Lutz family, they successfully did sell the rights for three different books to their post-Amityville experiences to John G. Jones and Paul Kamation in coordination with Gotham Press Publishing. Simultaneously, there was a script by a publicity agent named Chuck Moses, using a pseudonym of James Betts, that was completed in mid-1980 and was going to be called Unwanted Company. And that would relate how the Lutzes have been followed by these evil spirits from Amityville to their duplex overlooking the coast of Southern California. And this was intended to be the natural sequel to the Amityville horror. It featured the same family and their continued adventures, so it would make sense for this story about the Lutzes to be the continuation. Now, with George Lutz intending to make this Amityville horror sequel, Dino De Laurentiis wondered, well, how is AIP, now called Filmways, going to be making this prequel? And after some inquiries, Dino learned a valuable fact. Nothing legally prevented AIP from making any Amityville-related movie, so long as it wasn't about the Lutzes or anything specifically invented for the Anson book or the 1979 film. So while Filmways developed the prequel, Dino entered into his own agreement with Filmways to work on a sequel featuring a fictional family moving into the Amityville house. Dino hired novelist David Ambrose to script and John Huff to direct what was then called Death in Amityville. The script underwent a slate of contentious revisions, with Ambrose replacing his name eventually with a pseudonym, William Wales. Now, by early 1981, Dino had suffered a couple of major financial setbacks. Flash Gordon and Ragtime, they were big money losses for him, and that forced him to close his London office, at least temporarily. Sacchetti and his family relocated to work in Dino's New York offices on some revisions where he changed the setting of the ogre from England to Nantucket Island. 
When Damiani also came over, Sacchetti's qualms about him being the wrong choice were confirmed. Damiani had no interest in doing any kind of sleazy horror movie. He felt that this was going to diminish his reputation among the prominent Italian film critics he had been trying to curry favor for for a lot of his career. Damiani determined he was going to persuade Dino to let him develop a different film idea surrounding the American porn industry. It was going to be much more of a drama. After working on The Ogre by day, Damiani would drag Sacchetti out at night to New York's red light district to porno theaters or strip bars or fetish clubs. Research this film. Once he had enough concrete ideas, Damiani did fight for this idea with Dino, but Dino, he resolutely shot it down. He wanted him to work only on The Ogre. In July of 1981, though, Dino's son, Federico, he died tragically in a plane crash during this Alaskan snowstorm, and that resulted in Dino shutting down also his New York office for a spell to return to Europe Despite his mourning, Dino still managed a way to continue working to try to replenish his finances with less expensive efforts that might have some upside. When Dino discussed his stalled Amityville project and other proposals with filmmaker John Carpenter, Carpenter, who was pretty busy at the time, he recommended a couple of talented writer friends of his who were looking for a big break. They were young, they were talented, and most importantly, at least to Dino, they were inexpensive. So Dino initially brought in and picked the brain of Dennis Etchison, who specialized in novelizations of John Carpenter's screenplays, including Halloween 2, which was a De Laurentiis production. And then De Laurentiis also brought in Carpenter's childhood friend and USC Film School classmate, Tommy Lee Wallace. Now, Wallace, even though he had this opportunity, he honestly told Dino he really despised the Amityville horror. He also considered the Lutz story a complete hoax. He thought the more interesting story was the real-life DeFeo murders that happened in the home before the Lutzes. To see this family rotting from the inside out, that seemed to be a far more riveting subject than some fake haunting and people getting scared and leaving. Dino, he went to Filmways. He told them that he wanted to take over their prequel idea and make that film first. Then if it worked out, he would use Death in Amityville as a sequel. Now, with this deal in place, after reading Holzer's book, Tommy Lee Wallace visited Amityville. He wanted to soak in the atmosphere, and he also happened to go to the Museum of the American Indian in Harlem to research Indian lore that Holzer had mentioned in his book. And then Wallace began writing his first draft for the Amityville prequel. And this first attempt was structured in the form of flashbacks. There would be a news reporter in the present day interviewing Ronald Butch DeFeo on the events that led up to the murder of his family. And we would see flashbacks to what happened in his life up to the point of the massacre in his house. And we would also have flashbacks way back to the 17th century to experience the desecration of a Native American tribe who was in the area before settlers came in, which Holzer posited cursed the land that the house was eventually built upon. The house wasn't haunted. It was the land because the spirit of the tribal chief that was buried underneath, that was the entity that would possess Butch DeFeo to commit the murders. He wanted to keep everybody off of his burial land. Now, when Wallace handed in his first draft, Dino found that it was just too complicated. It was unnecessarily esoteric. Horror fans, Dino said, preferred a simple story. All they needed to do was to set up things for effective scares. There was no need to overthink this story. So De Laurentiis had a screenplay already 
that provided a linear approach for Wallace to follow for an example. When Sacchetti reconnected with Dino a year later to continue his work on the ogre, he found it had been completely repurposed by Dino and Wallace, and now was the Amityville concept. What was once an ogre living in this cursed house's basement was now this unseen demon who seemed to come from the basement and possess this young man within the house to commit heinous acts. Sacchetti was upset at this missed opportunity. He wanted to cross over into American filmmaking. This was going to be his big chance. He determined he was not going to take credit from whatever this was that they made from his script. Since this was what the ogre turned into, Tamiani was still technically going to be attached, and he returned after casting had already completed to assist Wallace with some final revisions to the screenplay. Damiani found the new script a ridiculous story. It fostered fabricated notions of demonic possession invented by these people who are unable to explain basic human behavior. Damiani also had not seen the first Amityville film. He didn't really know much about the story. So he treated Amityville 2 as he would any other screenplay. He didn't care about what the real facts of the case were or whatever the basic setting was back in the mid-1970s. But what he did see, he wanted to develop more. He brought in more exploration into the Catholic Church's involvement. Being from Italy, this was definitely a much bigger topic for him than it was to Wallace, say. He also wanted to explore their use of exorcism, which he found the more fascinating part of the story. He felt that the film lacked a central theme, so he wanted to develop a theme centering specifically on evil as this form of energy from which nobody, not even the church, can escape the consequences. The family would already come into this story being dysfunctional. They had an authoritarian and abusive father that pushed all of the rest of the family to the brink already coming in. It wasn't a good situation. The evil only exacerbated things. The presence of that evil pushed the bad people in the family to do worse and the weak to surrender to whatever the evil was manipulating them. Leaving the home would not solve the problems for this family because evil, once it's inside you, it destroys you from within, and he wanted a more physical representation of that within the film. Now, because the Lutz's script title at the time, Unwanted Company, did not include the word Amityville in it, and it also was not set in Amityville, Dino decided, hey, they should call this story Amityville 2. It would ride the coattails of the Amityville horror to financial success in the minds of the public. In 1982, the Jones-written book, sequel to the Amityville Horror, was finally released under the title, more confusingly to the public, of The Amityville Horror Part 2. That became an instant bestseller and, of course, had nothing to do with this movie. Now, meanwhile, Dino, he was intending to use Ambrose's script, Death in Amityville, as a sequel follow-up, which would eventually become Amityville 3D, further cementing his films as the official franchise, he felt, even if the Lutzes came out with theirs. Now, Sacchetti, who had refused credit for Amityville 2, he would revamp La Orco somewhat as this Lamberto Bava TV film in 1989 released internationally as Demons 3, The Ogre. Now, as Damiani intended to take quite a bit of artistic liberties to the original DeFeo story that was chronicled in Murder in Amityville, they decided they would avoid using real names that would sidestep unforeseen lawsuits by anybody. The DeFeos essentially became the Montellis. They would be moving into this recently purchased three-story Dutch colonial house. The father, Anthony, played by Burt Young, he's an abusive, foul-mouthed, 
guy. He owns a lot of guns. Very volatile and dangerous already. The mother, Dolores, played by Ritanya Alda, she discovers immediately blood coming out of the kitchen faucet. Pretty unnerving. The basement compartment is filled with rancid filth and flies. And The eldest son, Sonny, played by Jack Magner, he hears a voice talking to him when he puts on his Walkman headphones. Starts telling him to do things like kill his family and seduce his sister Patricia. Paintbrushes begin floating in midair and start painting these disturbing messages on the walls. Crucifixes start flying about. Unseen demons are lurking around the family. They're drumming up all manner of trouble. So Dolores decides they need to bring in a priest, Father Tom Adamski, to bless their house. But the evil that lurks within seems to be trying to thwart the priest's advances as much as possible. All of this culminates into the final act of the film that gets particularly gruesome. Father Adamski tries to exorcise the demon from within the grotesquely metamorphosizing Sonny, get that demon out that made him commit heinous acts that he claims he doesn't remember doing at all. To try to drum up some publicity and to give the film some credibility, demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren, who, if you follow the Conjuring movie series, they're kind of the main characters of that series, the Warrens were hired as advisors to assure supernatural events that occurred within the story within Amityville 2 were authentic. They had publicly criticized the Amityville Horror, the 1979 film, as well as the book that it's based on, because they felt that that misrepresented the nature of demonic possessions. The Warrens claimed that they did extensive research on the Amityville house. They discovered it was built on land with Native American ancestors that claimed that it was inhabited by devils. The executives at Orion Pictures, which had absorbed filmways in 1982, they found that the Warrens were pretty convincing when you talked to them, and they, they were enough to give Amityville 2 some respectability. So they continued to keep the Warrens on the payroll and sent them out to the talk show circuit to increase public interest in the film. Lorraine Warren would hype Amityville 2 as the most theologically sound film on the supernatural since The Exorcist. Two weeks of exteriors were filmed at the same house that was used in the prior film in Toms River, New Jersey. Two months of interiors after that were done in Churubusco Studios in Mexico City to try to save on union costs. De Laurentiis was making a lot of films in Mexico at the time. Damiani communicated with his actors in English, his crew in Italian. Others were brought on board locally. Uh, they spoke Spanish, so Damiani did need a translator to communicate with them. The crew was mostly American, but Damiani did bring over some Italian technicians that he trusted, including cinematographer Franco Di Giacomo. Damiani wanted continuous movement throughout his movie. He would emphasize handheld cameras, dolly work, long takes, live effects throughout to evoke the aura of unseen entities roaming all about the house and grotesque things happening as a result of it. As for the cast, Burt Young, he was cast here because Dino De Laurentiis, he saw that the role in the script required a middle-aged actor that could play somebody who was hard-headed and aggressive. And Young sprung immediately to mind for Dino. So he just basically hired him without needing to audition him. Although Burt Young's character was an obnoxious abuser, the rest of the cast did love Young because when he was not doing his acting, he was very funny and caring. He did a lot of pranks. He was not at all like the character that he portrays, either here or in the Rocky series. His portrayal of Anthony Montelli, in his mind, was trying to channel Robert Duvall's in The Great Santini. Jack Magner, this was his actually first 
big film role, and due to the nature of that role, he was much more reclusive with the rest of the cast. He would remain enigmatic to the other actors, whether intentionally or not, it's not quite certain, but this would be Magner's not only first, but only real big film role. He did a small role in 1984's Firestarter, which was also a De Laurentiis production, but unlike his character in the film, Magner did put his family first. He gave up his acting career, essentially, to be with them. Latvian-born actress Rutania Alda, she was brought in for Dolores via the casting director Ricardo Bertoni, who thought that Alda was a fabulous actress on stage and on screen. And She deliberately chose not to see the first film. She felt that this was a prequel. This was not related to the first film, so she wanted to avoid picking up any of Margot Kidder's performance style in her own performance. In addition to acting in this film, Alda also happened to save the life of Jack Magner's wife, May, who had been complaining one day of stomach pains. Alda had this dream that night of seeing May's name in the obituaries. So when Alda woke up, she told Jack Magner and implored him, take her to a hospital. And there it was discovered that May's appendix had ruptured and she probably would have died from blood poisoning if she had not received immediate treatment. The Magners liked Alda so much that they eventually moved into her neighborhood to be closer to her after they finished the movie. Diane Franklin, who plays the uh, the older of the sisters, she had competed with Elizabeth Barrage through several auditions before ultimately being chosen for the Patricia role. Barrage would coincidentally beat out Franklin two years later to play Constance Mozart in the film Amadeus. Franklin played Patricia as pure and innocent in her character, she would underneath have a passionate side that could be channeled if it was done in the right way. The difficulty, though, the tricky thing about this role comes from not only from viewing her brother as a lover, because there was an incestuous subplot to this film, but also that her brother happens to be somehow disappearing within his own body, and something scary is taking over, and that further causes a conflicted feeling with Patricia. As this is a family that has kept secrets of abuse hidden probably from everybody else for years, this particular function was no different. Franklin, by the way, would go on to marry Dino De Laurentiis's nephew, Ray, in 1989, just by coincidence. She would also return to Amityville, portraying Louise DeFeo, the mother role, in the 2018 film called The Amityville Murders, and that reunited her with Burt Young, who, in that film, plays her father yet again. Abusive scenes of Anthony and Dolores in the bedroom, they were shot, but they were removed in the final film because they were deemed too exploitative. One of those involved an anal rape between the husband and wife. Damiani wanted to show how this marriage could go completely wrong with the manipulation of evil around them. Reportedly, another element that was removed was their sex scene, which would have them appearing, at least for a moment, in porcine makeup. This would be an allusion to the father as a pig. That somehow made its way to the cutting room floor as well. Burt Young says that the hardest part of his portrayal was he had to also be abusive to the children, which affected his headspace in ways that he really didn't enjoy. The incest portion between Jack and Diane. No, this is not a John Cougar Mellencamp song, but the incest portion was less lurid in the final product than it was intended to be. Dino he had found Franklin so beautiful when he was watching the dailies that he wanted full nudity to take place within the film, a much more sexy version, but she refused. It was not in her contract to do anything more than partial nudity. Now, this incest element came from allusions in the DeFeo story of this deeper relationship that had occurred between Butch DeFeo and his eldest sister. 
Another reported deleted scene involves the younger Montelli daughter attempting to drown her brother in the bathtub. There's actually kind of an unnerving moment where one of these young kids gets a, a, a plastic bag over his head that sometimes rattles audiences, but I guess even more disturbing is the fact that these are played by real-life siblings, Erica and Brent Katz. Amityville 2, when it finally was released, it topped the U.S. box office in its first week of release, so it was successful. It hovered in the top five for the first month, so did pretty decent money there, although the overall haul was a far cry from what the original film took in. It only took in $12.5 million. That was a fifth of the Amityville Horror's overall gross, but that was still enough to make money on a budget that was reportedly under $5 million. The screenwriter, Tommy Lee Wallace, subsequently would say he was initially disappointed in Damiani's take. He thought that it was not as minimalist as he was expecting. He had been used to working with John Carpenter, who emphasized minimalist scares, and this was definitely a much more of a uh, very stylized version of a horror film. He also thought it really hit too hard on religious themes, at least for his taste. But over the years, Wallace has acknowledged that Amityville 2 has held up actually pretty well. The third act may be less interesting to follow for him and for others. It contains most of the gore, though, and that pleases a lot of lovers of these icky visuals, especially the practical design of them. The demonic possession sequences, they get praised for the makeup job employed. This was done by Dick Smith protege Jean Caglione in his first production as a supervising makeup artist. We watch here Sonny's torso physically collapse and then his skin begins to crack up and peel away in front of our eyes to reveal the physical manifestation of the demon within. The exorcism sequence is also grotesque, but it does it doesn't really have the shock value of say the exorcist, maybe because we lack a certain sympathy for Sonny, but it was also released the same year as Poltergeist, so there were unflattering comparisons from film critics who basically derided this movie. Poltergeist was seen as the much more populist and, and broadly accepted choice for a haunted house film. This was seen as kind of leftovers from a, a different era. The Lutz family did file a lawsuit, despite this film having nothing to do with them, for $25 million because they claimed that the title Amityville 2 created public confusion and would damage the financial viability of their own story rights through their deceptive actions of not only using the word Amityville, but also attaching the Roman numeral 2 as if it were the official sequel to the Amityville horror that they were intending to make. The courts determined in 1982 that copyright laws generally do not extend to the title of a work, at least film work anyway, and they dismissed the case, although they did order Orion to redo their posters because they had mentioned the Lutz family on them, that this would be somehow related to that, which it was not. And they had to replace that with one stating explicitly that this film has no association with the Lutzes or the events of the Amityville Horror. In 1989, though, an appeals court did reverse that 1982 dismissal, but the Lutzes did not ultimately prevail. Now, as far as what I think about Amityville 2, I don't think it's nearly as good as, say, a movie like The Exorcist. But I do think, you know, compared to the first film, which I've always been kind of lukewarm on, this, while objectively not necessarily a good film by a lot of standards, because there's a derivativeness within this film that kind of prevents me from being as a critic gung-ho on it, I do think that it is definitely much more successful at unnerving audiences than the first film. You know, If you're a fan of the original 1979 film, 
maybe it's annoying to you because there are some narrative inconsistencies between this film and the first film. But because this is a prequel, you can ignore the first film and view this as a standalone piece. And that's where I think that Amityville 2 ultimately becomes its own film. It does play like a giallo, the the surreal events, the the haunting musical score by Lalo Schifrin. uh, That's perhaps the only real big carryover from the 1979 film, other than, of course, the Tom's River, New Jersey house that was used for exteriors. The first-person camera work is mesmerizing through this film. The credible actors here also give some weight to the overall style. This is not just all style. There are some good performances here to admire as well. The film's climax does peak before the third act, so you know you kind of wonder why it's going where it's going, but the exorcism sequences do provide some of that requisite creepiness as well as the gore to say hardcore horror fans. Although the incestuous relationship maybe most of its luridness has been stripped out. I do think it's still pretty novel and racy. It's still uncomfortable to watch, even many years later, along with witnessing this whole family turn to violence in the end. Sensationalism is pretty high throughout this film, and that results in Amityville 2 being some pretty good tawdry trash, if you like that sort of thing. Despite better performances than most found in the subgenre, somehow Ritanya Alda received a Razzie nomination, maybe because she had received one the previous year for Mommy Dearest. They tended to carry over those sorts of things. She would receive another for her work here, even though I find her quite good in this film personally. But outside of her final scene, her performance, I think, is one of the highlights. Diane Franklin, though, I think, really takes it for me. She's very strong, working well with Magner in his first and only significant film role, exploring the tricky chemistry between siblings and lovers and whatever evil things are taking over him. Meanwhile, James Olsen, he becomes the film star, basically, during the last half of the movie. He lends pretty good credibility here and internal conflict that we see amid fantasy elements within this film. So if you prefer the eeriness of poltergeist or the exorcist i think there might be enough entertaining elements here within the events of amityville 2 i would argue that this is the best film in the amityville series at least as far as i've seen there are many many unofficial amityville films that i'm not as familiar with it is very over the top it's sometimes unintentionally campy but i do think that while it is on and you're watching it this very prurient subject matter the bizarre events that you see on the screen, it does make it pretty hard to avert your attention as these things transpire. And that's why I'm going to give it the most modest, really, of recommendations for horror film fans and give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it is worthwhile for people who like this kind of movie. And specifically, I mean, people who like these horror films, especially the gory and somewhat unsettling horror films, and don't mind necessarily that it may be derivative here and there of other films you may have seen in the genre. So it's a pretty good example of this kind of film. So that's why I'm ultimately going to give Amityville 2 The Possession three stars out of four. If you have your own thoughts on Amityville 2 or the Amityville series as a whole and you want to get in touch with me, you can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Let me know what you think of Amityville 2 if you so desire. Of course, we're going to be continuing on in the next episode with the next official entry, or unofficial, I don't know how these things are really judged, Amityville 3D, 
although I probably won't be watching it in 3D at home. But that is the next film done by De Laurentiis in this theatrical version of the Amityville series. So check that out if you haven't seen it to keep up with the reviews as I get to them. If you want other ways to get in contact with me, you can find my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram, and my email. All of those details you can find on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 